Hi there, and welcome back to the SMB Cybercast podcast, where it's all about helping small and medium enterprises and IT professionals learn cybersecurity, improve their defenses, and prevent breaches. If you want to take the security of your organization to the next level, then this is the right place for you. Welcome, and thanks for listening. This show is sponsored by CyberX. CyberX is a cybersecurity agency that specializes in the needs of small and medium enterprises. We believe that everyone is at the risk of attack these days, and that's obvious from the increase in attacks across the board. So if your company needs help with compliance, security, managed security operations, penetration testing, vulnerability management, or any other security need, feel free to reach out to us. You can send us a message at cyberx.tech slash contact. That's cyberx.tech slash contact. All right, let's get back to the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the show. We are really excited you're back with us today. And we have some exciting things to talk about. We're going to pick up where we left off last episode. Um, if you recall from the last episode, we were looking at the CIS-20, the Center for Internet Security, and the 20 security controls that they have published as a framework for organizations to improve their security programs. Um, so if you remember from last episode, we looked at the first bracket, um, the basic controls that every organization should be implementing. And in this episode, we're going to move to the next bracket, which is foundational controls, uh, kind of a mid-level. And we're going to start digging through some of these and talking about them, um, giving some suggestions how you can implement them. And we'll likely not get through all of them. There's quite a few. We'll see how far we get. All right. Sounds good. Let's go ahead and get started. Uh, the first control we're going to talk about is email and web browser protection. Uh, the web browser protection, um, common point of entry of attack because of their technical compl complexity and flexibility in their direct interaction with users. So the, the importance in this control, I'm sorry to interrupt, um, is what we're looking to do is we want to minimize the attack surface. Um, in the old days, organizations, most of them had their own email. And the email server was housed internally within the organization. And again, we're back on the castle and moat approach to security. Everything was on the inside of the organization. And the firewall basically was the security we had in place. As we see the move to the cloud, um, many organizations are using cloud security providers. Um, so yeah, these the attack service has increased. Um, there's so many more points of entry, like we always talk about, to the organization. So with, oh, and yeah, and web is the exact same way. Um, people are going all over the internet nowadays. They're sharing files or visiting sites, and there's so many um, attack points that they could be attacked. So that's what this control is talking about. We want to reduce um, that attack surface. Right, right. And reducing that attack surface, especially in nowadays with the web and everything in the cloud, you want to make sure as far as for email that you are with a reputable hosting company that hosts your email or a reputable company that has a decent level of security and protection. And that they're monitoring that security. That's correct. By running updates, patches. That's correct. Um, it's easy to put your email in the, in the cloud nowadays. You know, traditionally in the old days, I, I say the old days, but when um, um, uh, office packages with the email package and you just connect that to your provider and you had it at the desktop, now everything is 
generally in the web. You still you can use desktop, but generally in the web. But because of that reason, there's a lot of different providers out there. So you have to make sure that they are monitoring. There is a level of protection. Um, SSL security or secure connections is being used. Look at the company's record and history of their, um, has there been any attacks or threats against that company? You want to do your research here if you're putting your email in the web. And that's a good way of a, a layer of protection right there. You know, another thing we see a lot of times with small businesses is they buy a domain and they host their website somewhere and they use the, the um, webmail that comes with their right. um, domain hosting as their email. And your provider of your hosting most likely is not working on security for that. They're not maintaining that for you. Um, so if you're not maintaining security, no one is, and you're highly at risk. That's correct. And if they, it, it may be a level of security of a package they have on their back end. But again, that protection is only as good as an application they have slapped on the back of it. So you have to be very careful. Yeah, so if your email is in a cPanel, um, most likely that's security maintenance is going to fall on you to that's maintain. Correct. And um, your two-factor authentication, you're going to want that. Um, I was going to say with the cPanel, there is, I believe, a a basic level of security that you can even turn on or turn off. Right. Uh, even with that, you know, again, that's that's just one more step that's even better, but you want to look at the overall picture and make sure you're, you're protected there. Um, browsers, same thing. You know, I, I, I say the old days again, I refer back to the old days. You know, in, in small businesses, you should have a common browser. We used to have common browsers. There's a variety of different browsers out there. Um, it would be best to streamline those and keep those to a minimum of what your organization is going to use. You know, ideally, it would be great if you can do GPOs and um, across the board and, you know, lock certain things down or tighten it up. And depending on the architecture of your organization, of course. Exactly. Exactly. And some may not have that capability or the benefit of that. So if you don't keep everything to a minimum as far as streamline, uh, keep your patches and your updates on your browsers. Yeah, updating browsers is super, super important. Exactly. Um, DNS filtering yes. is a great um, addition point. to add to your security controls. That's a good point. Um, there's solutions you can use, pretty inexpensive. Um, most of them you do have to pay, but it's usually affordable. Um, there, there are even a couple um, free versions. Yeah, organizations that you can kind of point your DNS to to kind of filter it. Cloudflare um, has it, 1.1.1.1, where they use um, secure DNS. Um, but if you use something like Cisco umbrella or any of those DNS filterings for an organization, um, then you can be sure that even if you're not within the, um, walls of your castle, so to speak, if you're not within the firewall on the land, uh, even if you're out traveling or if you're out somewhere, um, you still have, the secure DNS. I mean, it's filtering out malicious, known malicious sites and threats, et cetera. That's correct. And again, that falls back to your endpoint protection, which will take care of a lot of that. Also assist with that. That's right. But if you're doing DNS filtering at your firewall, then using something like the Cisco umbrellas or one of those um, DNS filtering cloud solutions will be very effective when the person is not within the organization physically. Correct. And again, depending on your architecture of your organization, proxy, proxy servers is another one. Um, Proxy servers, um, again, depending on the complexity of the level of your organization and how, and how, how much you have invested in your income. Um, yeah, proxy servers. Yeah, a proxy server is a good example of a, some, a level of web protection. 
where you can um, where you point your email to that server and it scans uh, because they are doing this for more so many organizations um, they have a wider insight into what is malicious um, what the trending attacks are who those malicious domains are etc and they'll typically run your email attachments through a sandbox to make sure they're safe um, before they come on passed on to your actual inbox correct and i'll add one other important thing for email security is two-factor authentication um, email because it is so ubiquitous and so easily accessible um, it's becoming a quite a pain point for security programs um, we see so many uh, biz business email compromises um, if two-factor authentication is not in place not that it's the answer but it definitely does help prevent attacks it does um, it government does. Co is constantly putting out um, alerts on business email compromise where attackers will fish you send you to um, watering hole sites so that you log in and they steal your credentials and then they can pretend to be you from your mailbox and two-factor authentication has come a long way within the last couple of years um, it's more out in the in the open and being used a lot more by organizations and individuals for that matter um, it, it's a great easy way to add another layer of protection um, using two-factor authentication you can use two two-part two-factor authentication through Google um, Apple has a two-factor authentication and there's others as well um, so Again, another layer that you can easily input into your organization for another layer of protection with your email. So some practical tips for email and web protection, like we said. Um, use an email security provider. Um, there's several that are available. Mimecast. Um, there's quite a few. Just look it up. Um, be sure that your email providers turn on DMARC, SPF, and DKIM security controls. Um, that can help prevent spoofing of your email address. Um, so you can't have someone spoofing look like they're coming from an insider um, to someone else at your organization. And now, again, that only works if the recipient has those turned on also. Um, but it does help. And they're not hard to turn on. Um, DNS filtering we talked about. Um, there's several open source solutions for that. And probably the biggest thing you can do is user training. Yes. Train your users to look out for malicious emails. Yes. Um, train your users to stay safe online, not to click on ads. Um, I saw a study recently where they were talking about social media. Um, and studies show that about a third of the links on social media are malicious mm. in nature. Mm. So train your users. Um, there's a lot of free tools out there as far as... Um that teaches or provide training in in blocking phishing attempts or attempts and so forth. We've had um, guests on our podcast talking about the same thing. So there's a lot of different training out there, a lot of different awareness out there. Um, provide training to your users. You know, also some other things to mention. I don't know if we mentioned it. Spam filtering. Yes. Spam filtering is a, a big one for your your email protection. Uh, whatever that can be in the form of a plugin, or it can go back to your um, and email I'm, security provider. That's correct. Your They'll email security provider. If you're paying for it. That's correct. Or whatever you're using in-house as a um, antivirus or malware detection software, whatever software you're using. So spam filtering is another one. All right. So let's move on to malware defenses, malware which is defenses. number eight in the SIS 20. Again, we are in the foundational controls brackets. Um, so these are things that every organization should have. Um, if you're working on something like HIPAA, um, antivirus and malware defenses are a required component. 
So as far as whatever you're using for malware, first, number one is foremost, make sure it's up to date. Make sure it's updating automatically. Make sure you have the the latest releases of that, uh, the latest backend databases for that. Make sure it's being updated. Um, one of the worst things you can do is have a, a malware um, detection system and it's not up to date and you get hit with something. So make sure if those automatic controls or if someone is doing in your organization is doing it manually, make sure that it is updating. Uh, you got the latest latest um, updates on that. So let's jump back a second. Let's talk about why this particular control is important. Sys was very deliberate in the controls that they chose to put in this list as this framework. And the framework does actually have quite a bit of recognition. Um, if you're working on something like CCPA compliance, the new California Consumer Privacy Act, um, which is around privacy. Uh, but there are penalties if data is stolen and the security program was not as it should be. Um, we're going to do a future episode on CCPA. Um, so listen out for that. It'll be very beneficial for you. Um, but one of the frameworks that they have officially recognized, um, I say officially, in court cases in the past, they've set precedent that they take SIS 20 as a standard framework. So all that to say, uh, there's a reason for the controls that are chosen. So the reason for the malware defense control is sort of obvious, but we want to control the ability to install, the spread, as well as the execution of malicious code. We want to do this at multiple points in the enterprise. Again, we're not, we can't filter this out of the firewall. This is an endpoint um, protection implementation control. And, and while doing this, we, ought to want, we also want to optimize the use of automation. Um, the more you can automate in, in the spread of this, the better for your security overall. Right. Um, your defense, um, data gathering, your corrective actions. Um, you want malware defenses that can find attacks, quarantine those attacks, stop them, and then alert you so that you can take any further actions that's necessary. Um, this is not intrusion detection where we alert you that something's happening. We want to prevent it. Right. Um, automation with periodic checking. Make sure that your automation is working. Um, this is not a um, start it and leave it or, you know, set it and start it and leave it. You want to make sure that your automation is running. So there has to be some physical, some physical interaction with that. But for the most part, yes, automate, automate, automate. And most of the modern antivirus controls have the ability to automate. Mm -hmm. And you can also send reports out. You can do like weekly reports. What are the top threats that it's quarantined and found? Right. And that, then you can go and investigate further. Is there something that you need to improve? Um, are your users repeatedly making some mistake? Uh, those reports can be very helpful. And depending on the platform that you're using, I've even seen features as far as recognizing new um, um, devices on your network, you know, and asking you, hey, your new device detected, would you like to install, um, uh, you know, uh, a footprint on that? So a lot of different features. A lot of these controls they integrate very nicely into one another. Right. So your web protection, for example, can talk to and integrate with your malware defenses. And that way you get more of a holistic, um, higher level view of what's going on within your organization. And, I and guess, it can piece those pieces together and identify things happening right. that you might miss if you're manually going through and looking at each one. And I was going to say that, and that probably opens the door for a, a single or a, a single vendor approach, um, more or less. True. Or 
even some of the tools that work together. Right, right. Um, so when you're researching your tools, you might want to specifically look for tools that integrate with each other. Correct. Can Correct. they talk to each other and provide this data? Right. Um, and then, I mean, that even opens the possibility of pointing it to a SIM, a security incident um, event detection response system. Right. Where you can feed all of the logs from all of these systems into it, and it will begin to analyze based on what's happening at each point, what is an attacker trying to do? Right. And you get a total, then, then you'll have a real total holistic approach from your front line to your back end and the monitoring of it and the analysis of the logs of everything that's going on. In the malware defense, really we're talking about endpoint protection. Um, like we always keep talking about, the castle and moat approach does not work. Um, we need to bring the protection as close to the endpoint as possible. Um, even under a zero-trust type architecture, we want as many layers of security as possible. Um, I mean, in security general, you want layered approach to security. And malware defenses on the device is one of the most important. I mean, because if you think about it, um, you might have scans at the network level, um, scanning network traffic, but end users are still a threat. Um, Look at the attack on the Iranian um, centrifuges, 2010, the way the NSA did that. That was a completely air-gapped system. Mm -hmm. And they put malware onto the network that got onto a USB drive and then jumped the gap into the air-gapped network. Yeah. So endpoint protection. We want as many levels of security as close to the device as possible. And you can see we're always referencing the, the human element here, training training and, and it's going to be threaded all throughout so so a couple practical tips um like you already said uh, make sure your signatures and your software databases are up to date um if you're using a signature based malware detection uh, we want to keep those signatures up to date usually that happens a couple times a day um, some of the more modern malware protections are using a more automated approach where they're actually um, like sophos for example it runs everything through a sandbox to determine if it's malicious first, and then if not, it allows it to proceed on the computer. It's pretty impressive. You want you want to be sure you scan removable media. Uh, that's a big way that malware can be moved around the organization. And along with this, another very, very, very important thing is to configure your devices not to auto-run removable media. Exactly. Um, yeah, during pen tests, that's one of the, my favorite ways to get into a system. Load malware onto a USB. Of course, this is malware that we create or we, we're controlling. Um, plug it in. The computer auto runs it, and we've got access. And, and depending on the level and the, the security level of your, your organization, um, a lot of times there are group policies that prevents this automatically. Again, depending on the level, that's larger organizations or even some of the smaller organizations. If you're using... A Windows domain right. system. That's correct. Even if you're not using Windows domain, they usually have some kind of control you can use. Right. That will stop this automatically. Put it in a GPO, in a, in a profile or so forth. So. I mean, if you're not using a system where you can control all your computers from policies, then like we've talked about in previous um, episodes talking about Sys20, your users shouldn't be using administrative controls anyways. That's correct. So you can actually go into the group policy or you can make this into a work group. And you can distribute them that way. Um, go into those policies and turn off the auto run. And if 
you do that from an administrative account, they can't change that from a lower level account. The third item, limitation and control of network ports, protocols, so and Number services. three for this episode, but number nine on SIS <laughs> 20, if you're following along in the documentation. That's correct. Sorry. So limitation of control of network ports, protocols, and services. Um, so attackers search for randomly accessible network services and ports, open ports on your network. You know, that's how they get in. And, and I think it's commonplace. I think we all know know that. Uh, vulnerable and, and vulnerable to exploitation. Exploitation. So network ports, open network ports are vulnerable to exploitation from attackers on the outside. Um, so a lot of different type of devices on your network are poorly, can sometimes be poorly configured. Web servers, mail servers, uh, file and print servers, DNS servers. Uh, sometimes they're installed by default with a variety of different devices, you know, they, often without a um, business need for given or any given, given service. So what we're looking to do is we want to manage, we want to be able to track and control um, the use of ports, um, protocols, and services on our network devices. Right. Um, if you have any IT background, you know what ports, protocols, and services are. Um, but let's just break it down real quick just sure. to be sure. So your computer, think of it this way. It's a wall. Think of it as a wall with a bunch of holes in it. Um, when an email needs to come out from your computer to the internet, it goes through a particular hole. There's a particular hole in that wall for email. Um, depending on what kind of email you're using, that might be POP. All right, so we're using POP. It might be port 110. So there's 65,000 roughly ports on your computer. And the first 1,200 or so all have a particular re purpose, what they're used for. Um, so, yeah, like we said, email might go out port 110. Regular SMTP email might go out, right. goes out port 25. Um, if you're browsing the web, that goes out port 80. Um, so there's dedicated ports for each of these services. And in your organization, you want to turn off the ports for all of these services and protocols that you're not using. That's correct. So, yeah, that's what that's brings you up to speed what we're talking about if you don't have any IT background. And a good way of doing that is sometimes you initially have to do a port scan yourself of your IP addresses of your Internet connection to see what's open. Because a lot of the devices that you implement on your network have standard ports open sometimes or ports that you may not know that's open. And then when you utilize install ports. software, a lot of times it goes and opens ports on your device's firewall itself. That's correct. And you might not even be aware of that. That's correct. So sometimes there's doors and windows open on your network and you don't know that. So you're going to have to find some way to scan that and, and close those ports, shut those ports down. There's scanning tools you can use. Um, you can use Nmap to perform those scans. Um, if you need help, get a consultant. They can help you determine which ports are open on your network, which ones should be, which ones shouldn't be. Um, but we're going for kind of the same approach as need to know, but this is a need to use. That's correct. We want only the ports open that we need to do what we need to do. That's correct. Close everything else and run as far as on a minimum. Again, back to our layered approach security with um, limiting and controlling network ports, services, and protocols. We want to do this on multiple levels. So, of course, we're going to do this on our public-facing firewall, our firewall that faces the Internet. But you also want your firewall to be on on your endpoints. Uh, you want as many layers to that security as possible. Uh, a host-based firewall, we want those turned on. Even to the level of your servers, like especially if you're running like a Windows server you can go and make sure that there's services that's not running on your server that you don't want running. 
FTPs is a prime example. Any of those services that you're not using, you know, shut those services down. And during your inventory, your analysis in the earlier parts of the SIS 20, when we talked about uh, doing network analysis, find out what your inventory is. Um, you can, when you do those software analysis, you can use that to come back to this phase and associate all the open ports with a right. um, service that it's being used for. Right. If there's not a need for it, if it's not being used, then turn it off. That's correct. Don't leave it open. That's correct. Um, generally speaking, I can see, you know, in from working with past companies and organizations, I always use that human factor of there may have been a use for it at one point in time, and then that changed and you're no longer using that service that should be documented and that should be gone back and removed or turned off in your change management process. That's correct. That's correct. And if you're keeping your change management properly. So when you make these changes, when you discontinue using an application, then you can get a look in your documentation, which network ports we're using this, et cetera. Right. And it, it, it makes it easier to keep up with. And this could be also a service that you're using with a third party as well. True. You could be using their platform when you're no longer using that platform with that provider, close those ports. But you need your documentation in place so that you know that. So there's multiple approaches to security. Um, so sure, we can try to mitigate all these risks. We can close all these ports. Um, but every, like I said, a lot of those use known ports. All of those protocols, ports, services, et cetera, they use known ports. And any attacker that scans your network is going to know what these ports are. So one way that you can obfuscate some of that traffic is changing those ports. Um, again, this is not a silver bullet. Um, it's not going to automatically make you secure. I mean, even an attacker can still um, interrogate those ports that are open and try to get headers from packets and um, figure out exactly what it's been used for. But... For the low-level attackers and automated bots and stuff, it can help a lot. True. Um, I was going to say prime example. You know, um, SS, um, SSH. SSH is normally 22. Port 22? Right. SSH is port 22. Port 22. Change it up. Uh, again, this is not the silver bullet. It's not the end all. 3581. <laughs> something totally out of the realm. You know, something not common. Or same thing with FTP a lot. Oh, yes, yes. FTP is a known weak protocol, so changing it to something different like that, 3501, something of that nature, um, that can help obfuscate that traffic right. for the casual attacker. And Because they're going after low-hanging fruit. They don't want to work correct. terribly hard unless you've got top secrets or you're part of national security or something. Then, sure, yeah, they're going to work for you. But for the small businesses... They're looking for low-hanging fruit, what they can get in easily. And low-hanging fruit is, again, sometimes those things that's not turned off by default that you need to turn like off. RDP on your firewall. <laughs> or Telnet. <laughs> no one should be using Telnet. Port 23. Do so not while we're talking about this, turn RDP off from the public. <laughs> Do not allow RDP from the public internet. That is how so many of these ransomware attacks have gotten in is because RDP is turned on on the internet. So if you do use that obfuscation, so usually the way this works is we do what's called a port forward. Um, so at your firewall level, you tell it, okay, all traffic coming to port um, 3501, that's actually FTP. And it's going to switch it over to port 21 coming into your devices. There you go. And then, of course, whatever service you're using, your FTP server, you're going to have to change that to correlate. And again, it's not a silver bullet, but just a, a, another level of obfuscation. 
So I think we are just about out of time for today. We were getting good. <laughs> just getting good. <laughs> we didn't get very far through these. Um, so yeah, we're going to have to pick this up with another episode. Um, we'll have CIS 20 part three. Yeah. And we're hoping this is helping some organizations out there um, talking through this and, and, and kind of bringing this down to your level to teach you and show you what you can do to protect your business. If you have questions, go to our website, cyberx.tech. C-Y-B-E-R-X dot T-E-C-H. Go to our contact form. Um, hit us up. Ask us any questions you have. Um, go to, if you're on LinkedIn, jo- join the SMB Cybersecurity and Compliance Group. You can ask your questions there and we'll try to help answer you. That's right. And we also have a Reddit group, the SMB Cybersecurity and Compliance Reddit group. You can join us there. You can join us there and ask any questions you might have. That's right. Okay. Until the next episode. We'll see you then. And that's the SMB Cybercast podcast. Thank you again for listening. Please check out our other white papers, roadmaps, and webcasts at www.cyberx.tech resources and our blog at www.cyberx.tech blog. We have lots of guides and roadmaps to help you improve your cybersecurity program. Go check us out and we'll see you next episode.